Okay, looks like leftover peas, carrots, broccoli, like two bites of a sausage, some half-eaten chicken, like like literally half-eaten, like ABC chicken, already been chewed chicken. There's a little bit of blue cheese left. And there's like a, a little bit of a pickle remaining, so we get rid of the pickle jar. And uh, there's your lunch. <laughs> sounds, sounds sufficient, I suppose. Uh, this, oh, by the way, yesterday I got my very first, someone came up to me. Are you Mike Slater? Yes, I am. What's your name? Oh, nice to meet you. Oh, I've been listening to you since I was a kid. That's the, <laughs> that's my first one I've ever gotten to this. I, in fact, she's been listening to me since she was nine. Nine years old. She's been listening. What? I feel like I was not as present and polite in that conversation because I could not quite get over uh, that uh, that statement. I've been listening to you since I was a kid. Uh, so this is from the Babylon Bee, which is a satire website, a conservative satire website, one of the few funny conservative things that there is. Um, we at the Babylon Bee, uh, now let me quote this. Uh, I just received this notice that we've been locked out of our account on Twitter for hateful conduct. Hateful conduct. Our account will be restored in 12 hours, but the countdown will not begin until we delete the tweet that violates the Twitter rules. We're not deleting anything. Truth is not hate speech. If the cost is telling the truth is the loss of our Twitter account, then so be it. And there you go. So the tweet was, uh, where's the tweet here? Uh, the Babylon Bee's man of the year is Rachel Levine. Rachel Levine is a man and has been awarded Woman of the Year in different periodicals. Uh, in fact, he is a man. So Babylon B says, the man of the year, Rachel Levine, Twitter, boom, done. You're gone. Can't post hateful conduct. Truth matters. That's what is at root here. The root of this and what's at stake here. Truth matters. So I have not watched any of the uh, Supreme Court hearing stuff, uh, confirmation hearings. But I will tell you what's coming, a little friendly reminder of what is coming in the Supreme Court. June or so, the Supreme Court will announce their decision on the Mississippi abortion law. What's, what's kind of just weird to think about is they've already made their decision. The decision is already made. The vote is already made. Now uh, they just take the time to write the decisions and, and go through that whole process. But it's already done. Like they already got together and voted on what they're going to do. It's just a secret until June. What are they going to do with uh, Roe v. Wade? June, we're going to find out. In other words, June, the country's going to implode. Like nothing you've ever seen. Brett Kavanaugh was the greatest media left freak out I've ever seen in my entire life. Even more than when Donald Trump won was the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing, although they're obviously related. Uh, and then, you know, they didn't treat Amy Coney Barrett much better. 
this per, this nominee, I don't I haven't seen any of it. But my understanding is that they're they're of course the Republicans are not treating her anything like what what Kavanaugh was. I mean, like holy cow, right? That was unreal. What happened with Kavanaugh? And when Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's going to be a thousand times worse. It is the difference between uh, a nuclear bomb and one of those firecrackers that are probably illegal in California that you throw on the ground and they like snap, you know, those things. Like, like that, that'll be the difference. And like the little snap is Kavanaugh, which is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my political life. And, and, and this is going to be the atom bomb compared to it. So what is the Supreme Court going to do? Ideally, they would decide that abortion is the taking of a life. And the Constitution has what's called a necessary and proper clause, which allows the federal government to make laws against murder. So therefore, no state would pass a law allowing abortion because that's murder. That is one extreme. The most likely outcome is that the Supreme Court says, you know, it's up to the states. And then you'll see a stark difference between the states. Texas will say no abortion. Currently, their line is six weeks. All right, a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant until after six weeks. Uh, because you like count that, you count like the weeks from like the, it's like two weeks before. And it's like weird how they calculate it. Uh, so that'll be taxes. And then states like California are going to be like, you can kill your baby after they're born. And we don't care. <laughs> right? it's just, like, the, like the extremes are going to be as different as they can possibly be. Texas and Mississippi will say, oh, no abortion. California's going to be like, kill your toddler. And the states are uh, already sifting themselves out. Colorado, surprisingly Colorado, just passed a bill, uh, sort of. They passed it in the Senate, party line. Uh, the Democrats own this, this, the House, and the Democrat is a governor. So this will pass eventually. Uh, but it legalizes abortion up to 40 weeks. 40 weeks? I put on my I put on Twitter uh, uh, just a video of a baby in the first trimester, right? and you can't. I mean, of course it's a baby, right? Forty weeks. <laughs> I don't care who you are or what your stance is. Forty weeks. It's called the Reproductive Health Equity Act. I'm not I'm not going to go into the whole thing about how the uh, parental uh, the Parental Education Rights Act in Florida was called the Don't Say Gay Bill. But the Reproductive Health Equity Act in Colorado is not called the Legalize the Murder of Babies Bill, which would be the equivalent of that, but the conservatives don't control the media, so of course it's not. The bill even says that if doctors, tr doctors, doctors, try to abort a baby, but the baby is born, if the mother wants, then doctors are not allowed to provide life-sustaining medical care. So just let the baby die. That's infanticide. That's the killing of a baby after it's even out of the womb. That's what the governor of Virginia, the old governor, a couple of years ago talked about. Remember, he talked about making the baby comfortable. That's what that was. So to be clear, the baby's outside the womb. I heard an analogy for the first time. Uh, I'll steal it. You can steal it. Uh, this person said astronauts are not alive when they're in space because they're just not viable outside of their spacesuits. They're just not viable. That's one of the abortion arguments, right? The baby's not viable. That's ridiculous. My two-year-old John could not survive on his own for very long. So what does viable even mean to my two-year-old? Truly, what does viable mean? If I leave him in the woods, he wouldn't survive very long on his own. So viable is ridiculous. If a male astronaut, an adult male astronaut goes into space 
and takes off his life-preserving spacesuit, he'll die, which means he's no longer viable when in space. Literally, the word viable means capable of working successfully. So if, an, if someone's in space, they're not capable of working successfully. In biology, the term viable means uh, no longer capable of surviving or living successfully, especially under particular environmental conditions. So by the left's abortion logic, uh, uh, an astronaut, once he gets into space, is uh, not a person. Not a person, not viable, not viable, not a person, clump of cells. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, no, Slater, that's not it. Uh, it's not viability. It's uh, sentience. You need to be sentient, able to perceive or feel things. That's what matters. Okay, well, then a person in a coma is not a person anymore. So one of your family members is in a coma. Someone could just come in and murder him. And because that, that person in a coma is not a person anymore, they don't feel it. They don't feel anything, so they're just a clump of cells magically now all of a sudden. Of course not. The depths that people will go, the lengths and depths people will go to tie themselves into knots in their effort to not admit the truth, it's astounding. I came across an article from a professor at University of Bath in the Gender and Sexuality Research Department. Uh, she wrote an article, and it's one of my all-time favorite articles. I love this. About This is in light of the, the guy swimming against the women. Uh, she said, you know, people think that women's sports exist as a protected category so that women can participate and women can win by competing only against women, right? That's why we have women's sports. But she says, no, 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 no. The reason why, well, let me ask you, why, like, obviously, why do women's sports exist? Why do women's sports exist? Why is there women's basketball, women's track and field, women's uh, soccer? Why, why, is, why are there women's things, right? And it's, of course, because women can't compete against men, could not win, could never win, actually would get hurt, would get really hurt. And this, this professor's like, no, that's not the reason. Oh, I'm intrigued. What could possibly be the reason, Deputy Director of Equality and Diversity in the Department of Health at the University of Bath? What could possibly be the reason? I'll take a break. I'll tell you why when we come back, because it's just fantastic. Before we have fun, uh, and talk about these, this professor's argument that women's sports don't exist because we need to give women a chance to compete on their own. That's not why women's sport exists. I'll get to her reason why women's sport exists in just a second. Uh, but I got to play this. This is from the Women's NC2A Basketball Tournament on ESPN, owned by Disney. They're talking about, of course, the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill, which is they call the Don't Say Gay Bill. And here they are at halftime legislation happening in Florida and across other states as well that are targeting our LGBTQI plus communities. Many of our colleagues here at ESPN have planned and organized a walkout that will be happening at 3 p.m. Eastern today. And to be honest with you, we thought we were going to come here today and really celebrate a sport that has meant so much and done so much, including for so many in the LGBTQIA plus communities. But we understand the gravity of this legislation and also how it is affecting so many families across this country. And because of that, our allyship is going to take a front seat. And with that, we're going to pause in solidarity. And they, they go and they take a moment of silence. Now, later we can talk about ESPN and I guess Disney's position that we should teach five-year-olds about homosexuality and transgenderism. Camera panned to the court of a women's basketball March Madness game, halftime, empty stadium, of course. No one's there. It's Howard versus South Carolina, All right? Halftime, 
And so, so it's, here's the court, and then it has you know the, the score at the bottom of the screen. The halftime score is South Carolina 44 to 4. <laughs> it's 44 to 4. In the first 20 minutes of play, the Howard women's basketball team has scored twice against other women. All right. Imagine the Howard women's basketball team playing against like, like a mediocre high school boys team. 44 to four. What, what is that? 45. Could you watch that? Unbelievable. So this, anyway, I share that because this professor's argument is that the reason women's sport exists as a category is because men were threatened by women competing. That's why women's sports exist. Because men were like, oh no, these women are going to beat us. So we have to start, like we have to put women in their own leagues. Otherwise they're going to make us look bad. That is our argument. And the reason I share this story, and I love this story so much, is because this is a professor of gender and sexuality research uh, and in the equity department. And like the, the depths and lengths that someone will go to defend the most ridiculous of arguments. Like, of course, this is in light of the, the man guy beating all the women and swimming. swimming. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. There's no such, the re only reason we have women's sports is because women were beating men. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? So she gives a couple of examples. You ready for the examples? Exhibit A1. Do they do that in England? It's 1A. Isn't it usually 1A? Maybe in England they do A1. I don't know. Figure skating. Okay. 1902, Madge Sires enters the world champs. 1902. And she comes in second. There's no rule preventing her from competing, though no woman has ever entered before. So in 1903, women were banned from the world champs. And in 1905, they had a segregated women's category. Okay, super. You had to go back 120 years to, <laughs> to find an example. 120 years, and it was figure skating. Okay, uh, example A2, skeet shooting. 1992, Barcelona, Zhang Shang wins the gold medal. The event had always been an open event, no gendered categories. 1996, Atlanta, women banned from shooting. Banned or just given their own category so more women could compete? 2000, segregated women's category, fewer targets for women. Great. So your second example after figure skating from 120 years ago is a sport that has no physical contact. Super. Great job, uh, Professor. Third example, exhibit A3, football, soccer. 1920, the women's football was thriving in the UK with 53,000 strong crowds. 1920, 1921, the FA, that's um, Football Association, bans women's soccer. 1971, 50 years later, the ban is lifted, women's soccer still recovering. Okay. Uh, the thing about 1920 in England, uh, that was when the men were off fighting in World War I. So they had women compete, sort of like a league of their own here in America, right? So women were competing because the men were gone. It's not like in 1920 the women were competing against the men or with the men, and the women were doing better. So the men were like, oh, we better stop women's soccer because otherwise we're, we're, we're going to look like idiots here. They're going to beat us. <laughs> no chance. And everyone knows the story by now of the American women's world cup winning team a couple years ago competing against literally a, a group of 15 year olds and losing like four to one or something like that like they got crushed 
Like, but, so again, the, the fat, th that's the woman's three examples. Figure skating from 120 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, shooting, no physical contact, and then soccer during World War I when there were no men to compete. Those were her three examples to prove that the only reason women exist, women's sports exist is because the patriarchy was worried about women winning. Isn't that unbelievable? Like, it's not even that. Her, I mean, she's a ridiculous person. It's just big picture. Like, there's so many examples of that, of people making the most ridiculous arguments to justify the most ridiculous things possible and the lengths that they'll go to beclown themselves in the process. You know, everyone knows as early as middle school, every gym class had a rule that you had to pass it to a girl <laughs> before you could even shoot. She says, more examples exist, but the pattern is clear. Pattern. Three examples. Where women are included, it was only when they started threatening man's dominance that we were segregated into a separate category. It is why we still see sport and women's sport, right? So like basketball and women's basketball, as opposed to men's basketball, women's basketball. Women's inclusion was on the terms of those in power. They didn't want women taking opportunities away from men, so they segregated women. It's never been about a benevolent aim of supposedly giving women a chance to win. It was about control, says this psychopath. This is why I, all, I will always fight for the inclusion of trans women. That's men in women's sports. Fantastic. Um, so in her world, let's take a pairs figure skating. The woman, women should be throwing the man around. And there's, I bet there's some progressive figure skating couple that would probably want to do that, but it's impossible. There's not a single woman in figure skating who can throw the man in the air. <laughs> it cannot happen. I'm sure it's allowed, but it cannot happen. Now, again, I will drive this again, point on I don't care about this argument that this woman's making. It's patently absurd in every way. But how fascinating to observe the lengths that someone will go to defend the indefensible. In this case, men competing against women in sports. Amazing. And listen, Dr. Sheree Becker of University of Bath, Department of uh, gender and Sexuality Research and Deputy Director of Equality and Diversity in the Department for Health. You want to get rid of women's sports? Fine by me. Fine by me. Let's just have everyone compete as one. Men and women compete together. And there won't be a single woman left in sports. And when there's not a single woman left, then you can thank Dr. Cherie Becker and all the other feminists for all their hard work in equity. Hey, Sider coming up on uh, Thursday, I will be uh, merely emceeing, but it is an honor, uh, an event for the San Diego Blood Bank. And uh, I always like to take that opportunity to remind you about the wonderful San Diego Blood Bank and the fantastic things they're doing and how impressive the San Diego Blood Bank is, how impressive and essential they are to not only San Diego, but uh, much larger. Uh, throughout Orange County as well. Uh, the CEO I've talked to a ton of times uh, is no longer the CEO. He's on to some different exciting things that we can talk about, David Wells. But the new CEO, or uh, interim at least, is Doug Morton. Doug, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to talk to you, Doug. Give me some uh, facts about the San Diego Blood Bank um, and like like who you're giving blood to and, and the reach and the amount. And it's, again, this massive operation. <laughs> 
Yeah, we really need um, uh, you know about 2,500 uh, donations every week to supply the need. We supply throughout Southern California, um, you know, several children's hospitals in the area. So we're always looking for those O donors for um, baby units and that sort of thing. And then certainly always trauma. We need we need units on the shelf. We say that a lot, right? It's the blood that that's on the shelf that saves lives. We're currently sitting at between one and two days supply, and so we'd like to see that increase. How many how many days do you normally have or ideally have? You know, ideally we'd like to be sitting at five to seven days of a typical supply. Wow. Um, so what and and that's what we want in our inventory. So we stock up the hospitals and then that's what we refer to as really a safety uh safety stock. So when there is that trauma, you know, that um, the surgery gone bad, whatever it may be, that we, you know, have no concerns about having plenty of inventory on hand. So they go through their inventory first, and then you backfill their inventory. Yeah, we're here twenty four seven. That's that's what we're here for. How does that how do, how does that work? I, do, I, 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 I have so many questions about the blood. <laughs> like, so so if I get blood at wherever, uh, let's say it's one of the mobile units, right? How does it get from the the back of the bus? to wherever it goes <laughs> safely. And that had to yeah. take up forever to like make sure we get this process down right. That's another question. When did this donate yeah. blood start? Like historically, when did this is the thing that we think we <laughs> do? Yeah, it started a long time ago, you know, long before we even had the concept of blood types. And so it was kind of hit or miss back Whoa. in the day. Whoa, imagine <laughs> that. Imagine that when they're like, hey, this blood, thing works right this donating blood or whatever and then sometimes it doesn't just because the blood types don't match and they had no idea that that was even a, a problem wow yeah so we'll have to have you in for a, a behind the scenes tour at, at our facility um at our gateway facility you know i like to tell people we're essentially a non-profit pharmaceutical so when you when you think about a blood donation it's regulated by FDA as a drug, as a biologic, mm. um, and we have all the same regulatory, so high quality, you know, the, the staff, high quality testing, all the processing for a product that is going to save someone's life, and it has a shelf life, and so that's all part of the logistics side of blood banking. Have you ever at San Diego Blood Bank had no day supply? Like when, whenever I get a call for critical need, I'm sure there's some like day amount when you're like, oh, now we're in critical. <laughs> but like, has there ever been like, like, oh, people haven't stepped up and you you haven't had even a day supply? Uh, we we are truly blessed. This community has been amazingly responsive when called to action. Um, so, so if there's a call to action, the San Diego community will come out, no question. Uh, it's really just a reminder that again, it takes a couple of days before that blood gets to a patient after all the testing and processing yeah. is done, which is why we just need people to make it a habit. Our uh, director here, Mike Usher, donated 10 gallons, 10 gallons of blood. <laughs> How many donations is that, Usher? Yeah. I lost count. Wow, 10 gallons, that's amazing. Does he get a prize or something? Does he, get, does he just get a hearty pat on the back? I got a done? shirt. You got a shirt. <laughs> Very good. And the knowledge that you've saved many lives as well, Mr. Usher. Um, Doug, I don't know how, how uh, great your expertise is in this. I mean, you are the CEO, right? But uh, David Wells, who he's talked to, like his, his like, like, uh, like, like 
was like crazy about this personalized medicine future yeah. thing that we got going on and, and the role that San Diego blood bank pays in that, plays in that. Uh, and it always got me very excited. Um, can you speak to that a little bit and, and get people fired up about that potential as well? Absolutely. So one of our initiatives um, we call precision blood. Uh, and so that's something that we're continuing and just received some grant funding to extend this. Um, one of our initiatives this year, just to tie into this, is really to work on the diversity of our donor base. Because the, the most likely match for a rare type is going to come from someone with a similar demographic background. Really? Preci yeah, so precision blood, it's a process that uses next generation sequencing to deeply type a red cell at, at a much more cost effective method than serologic methods uh, that we've used in the past. And so by establishing a large database of those donors, which we're going to do through Precision Blood, when, when there's that rare donor, could be a sickle cell patient, could be right, any demographic, we'll be able to look into our database and then call that donor back and say, we have a need. It's okay. this idea of kind of a walking blood bank of rare donors. Interesting. Okay, I want to I understand this. So there's, there's four blood types, right? Mm-hmm. A, A, B, A, B, O, is that the right? And, and then Correct. There's, are there positive negatives too, or do they not call that a blood type? Is that still four? Well, so technically what's called the, what is the D antigen, which is what's referred to as the RH, right? So the negative or the positive, when you talk about someone being O pos or O neg as an example, uh, that's one antigen. There are hundreds of them that you just don't hear about. But when you have a, a patient which you see some of our patients that are that are transfused, so, you know, several times, um, sometimes every couple of weeks, you know, throughout the year, they develop antibodies, and it becomes harder and harder to find the right match for that patient. Really. So that's what the, that's what this process does. It allows us to really identify a very specific unit, and by developing our donor base, so we're encouraging everybody. Um, of all demographics uh, to donate so we can build that uh, database of rare donors. Wow, that is fascinating. So what, what are the different eth ethnic backgrounds or whatever that may have a higher likelihood of matching? Does it mean it's like, like Hispanic is such a broad group. Like what does that even mean when it comes to blood <laughs> donors? It is, and that's, that's what we're identifying with this precision blood um, process, right? Because sometimes it's, where your ancestors came from. Um, so certainly among, you know, specific groups, whether it's African-American or Asian, there are antigens that are more or less prevalent, uh, which is why we say we just want our donor base to look like our community, look like the patient base. Yeah. Because when it comes to rare units, that's likely where we're going to find them. So like what's, give me an example of like a rare, a rare kind. Because what's the rarest of the four? Is it? You know, right, but then, but then you say there's more than just the four kind of, right? So what are the, what are the rarest of the four? Right, I think the rarest is AB negative um, if you're just talking blood types. But yeah. again, it's not so much the blood type. It's so OPAS we use for trauma, right? So we can use that because it'll match any, hmm. uh, any blood type in, in a need for trauma. ONEG is usually used for... Uh, females of childbearing age, um, because you don't want to cause that RH uh, problem. But 
the antigens we're talking about are things, again, that nobody really hears about consistently. So when you get an O-pos, there's blood groups beyond just the Rh positive, and that's what we're we're identifying through the precision blood. Wow! And when did we even know that that was a thing? Because like we were kind of half mocking when they first started blood donations, and we didn't even know it was <laughs> A B A B and O, right? But now we know. Now we're learning that there's even more than that. So when did we first discover that? You know, I don't know the exact time frame, but with the advent of of sequencing, which is what we're using for um, precision blood, we've been able to identify a, a, the last number I heard was potentially 1,700 variations. What? Of, of which, you know, our test right now is identifying um, maybe in the hundreds category where they've been validated against other measures. And so, you know, once we have that sequence of that blood as new um, antigens are discovered, yes. we can go back and, you know, review our database again. Oh, wow. Anyway, I'm sorry for geeking out on that. I just, I don't, I don't know if anyone <laughs> else finds that interesting. I just find that that's crazy that we're still learning all this stuff and we know nothing and then we learn more and then we realize how little we know. And, uh, I'm always <laughs> fascinated by that process. Uh, we got to go in like a minute or so, but what, uh, how did COVID affect you guys when it came to donors and giving? Cause you know, hospital census was down in some ways, but you know, up in other ways and whatever, how did that affect you guys? Yeah. So usage dropped off really quickly for about a two week period at the beginning of the pandemic. Then it came storming back. Mm -hmm. And so then the challenge from a usage perspective, the challenge then was, all the blood mobiles that were canceled yeah. uh, because businesses are going remote. And so we've really made a pivot uh, to our fixed site donor centers. And again, the community has responded amazingly well. Uh, we have a new donor center actually that's going to be opening in the next month or so in uh, Chula Vista. Nice. Uh, we, we opened one in Liberty Station uh, like in August of last year. So that's part of our strategy is to have those community sites convenient do you guys, are you guys in the monoclonal antibody business? <laughs> We're not in that business. We are still collecting uh, COVID convalescent plasma, which um, for, for some of these new variants that pop up, right, that is um, the COVID convalescent plasma is kind of an initial treatment. And for some patients that are immunocompromised that can't receive the other products, that's the only option for them. Wow. So if someone gives why blood, we're yeah, if someone gives blood and you, does everyone who give blood, do you guys separate the plasma for that purpose? Or is that a separate process that a donor has to go through? Uh, no, the donor doesn't have to necessarily go through a process. We can, we can separate the plasma from a whole blood. Um, there is the process of uh, collecting plasma only, but we yeah. can collect it from whole blood and then we just test it for antibodies. Wow, so that that's huge, right? That that's that's a big deal as well. Yeah, it is. I, again, we have you know patients that that's that's the product if they uh, get COVID, that's the product because of um, other issues that they need. Yeah. Uh, very exciting. Okay, uh, we got to go, Doug. But but thanks for for checking in and I, again geeking out with me for a while. Um, where <laughs> can people learn more and and hopefully this inspired them to go give it. So SanDiegoBloodBank.org, uh, all the information's there. And I just want to say thank you for, you know, agreeing to come out and MC our Connect to Life event. No, it's my really honor. Really appreciate I've, it. Yeah, I've done it like five times or something, but we, but it's been a while. It's been like two years since we had one. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, excited, I'm excited to be back. 
uh, and excited to see you on Thursday. Thanks, Doug. Really appreciate it. Appreciate Thanks, you, brother. Uh, Doug Morton, CEO of San Diego Blood Bank. Tired of geeking out over blood. Although one of my favorite facts is that George Washington died from too much bloodletting. Doctor's like, he's got some disease. Let's take out all of his blood. And that didn't work. And then another doctor came in and said, uh, more blood. We got to get more blood. And then another, another doctor, we got to get he's got too much bad blood. Got to take all his blood out. And then he died. He didn't have any blood left. Um, all right. So enough blood talk. Let's, uh, let's keep making fun of women's sports. So uh, this is another clip from ESPN women's basketball tournament, which is on, again, on ESPN owned by Disney. So the women's NC2A tournament's on ESPN because CBS plays the men's. And like ESPN's like, wow, you guys, we got to put something on. It's like whenever the Super Bowl's on, like Super Bowl's on NBC. And I like, what's, what's, on, what's on ESPN? If you're a sports fan, you're watching the Super Bowl, right? So like what's on ESPN during the Super Bowl? And they'll have like the cornhole championships or like the puppy bowl. That's the only thing that can dare compete against the Super Bowl. Anyway, so on ESPN, they have, they're doing the women's thing, and uh, here are the announcers. Courtney Lyle, Carolyn Peck. Now, normally at this time, we would take a look back at the first half, but there are things bigger than basketball that need to be addressed at this time. Our friends, our family, our coworkers, the players and coaches in our community are hurting right now. And at 3 o'clock, about eight minutes ago, our LGBTQIA plus teammates at Disney asked for our solidarity and support, including our company's support in opposition to the parental rights in education bill in the state of Florida and similar legislature across the United States. And a threat to any human rights is a threat to all human rights. And at this time, Courtney and I, we're going to take a pause from our broadcast to show our love and support for our friends, our families, and our colleagues. And then they just played the game without any announcers for a couple minutes. And I'm, I'm, it was very moving. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that both people watching were moved to tears. I was as I watched the, the replay. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable mass delusion that people can say all that stuff with a straight face. A threat to human rights, a threat to some human rights, or a threat to all human rights. This is about teaching five-year-olds about homosexuality and transgenders, five-year-olds, five-year-olds, it's kindergartners to third graders, right? So this is a very interesting question. Why is it that women in sports media, it's a serious question, women in sports media, they would rather be a voice for we must teach five-year-olds about homosexuality. They'd rather be a voice for that than be a voice for the women who are losing to men in women's sports. That's weird, right? Surely the women who are like announcers in sports played sports when they were growing up, right? So they're beneficiaries of Title IX from 1972. They benefited from Title IX, the separation of women's, a creation, the separation of women's sports, right? So you'd think they would defend women who are now losing to men in women's sports. You'd think, now of course they would do that, but they're not. They're more obsessed with teaching little boys and girls that they can switch genders and what gay sex is. How odd, isn't it? Not a word about men beating women in women's sports. Not a word of that, but they must make a stand on teaching five-year-olds about homosexuality and transgenderism. 
Very interesting. And again, owned by Disney. I heard someone say that pawns go where pawns are moved. Perhaps that's right. But I also know that the serpent did not target Adam directly, but it played on the emotions of Eve. Nothing changes. Spread the word. 